Hi, I'm Natalie Gawkner. This is Both Sides of the Aisle, and I represent the productive middle and have on the political right, John Dougal. Hi, Natalie Gawkner. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. We're smiling and looking at each other in studio. Shereen Gorbani on the left. Hello, and hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Good vibe today. I don't know what it is. Yeah, energy is good. Energy's good. And, we uh, had but, some spring days this last week. Oh, it's I know. just beautiful. I'm planning on a camp out this weekend, and the temperatures are going to be in the 30s, and I uh, think we might change plans. six inches of snow at my house on <laughs> we might be doing a ski so, yeah. trip instead. <laughs> but uh, but the uh, you know public affairs news moves on and we had Michigan Shireen uh, this week. Uh, so Biden you know goes into Michigan, looks like he gets the win, but it wasn't without controversy. Yes. So first of all, let, let me just mention that Michigan is a really interesting state. Mm-hmm. There is a large population of Arab Americans, many of whom and frankly many Democrats, younger generation of Democrats are quite continue to be quite troubled by the president's what feels like sort of ongoing and largely unconditional support for Israel. And there's a uh, large effort, there was a large effort to encourage people to send a protest vote and vote uncommitted. This is something that happens. This was not new to mm-hmm. to Michigan. This has happened in past elections as well. It's it's a common occurrence. But the thing that was different here is that typically it's like a, a high number of uncommitted might be 25,000 votes. And here we're talking about 100,000 votes. And they're specifically coming from Communities where we know there's a the large Arab American population, and then also um, around college campuses. Um, so I think what this is is really a signal to the Biden administration that you need to listen to this issue and pay attention. Yeah, because he got double digits, non-committed or uncommitted, yes. however they say it. What was it about fourteen percent, fifteen percent, something like, like that. that? And, and my understanding is those that were leading this protest vote were trying to get ten thousand supporters, and they got over a hundred thousand, as you mentioned, and so. That is kind of an interesting thing. I'm, I'm curious, clearly it's a protest vote right now. When it comes to the general election, will they sit on the sidelines or will they back Biden as the nominee yeah. or will it kind of be a mix? What are your thoughts there? So my thoughts are um, generally uh, when we think about things like the travel ban that was implemented by the Trump administration, the, the really hateful rhetoric targeted, of course, we can think of examples of things that he said about Mexicans and certainly really disparaging things about um, people from the Middle East. I think that these individuals are certainly not going to be voting for Donald Trump. They're largely going to come back. But will they all continued, you know, will will Democrats in general line up to continue to support Biden with these serious concerns about mm. the humanitarian crisis, the genocide happening in Gaza? I don't know. I think there's going to be, there, we're going to lose votes over this. Well, Michigan was one of the swing states. Michigan was one of the ones that decided it for Biden. Yeah. So if mm-hmm. it swings. Yeah. You know, I would say from the political middle that it's, um, elections matter and they don't just matter at who wins, but they matter during the election because you're shaped and I think President Biden will be shaped by this. I agree. Something like that. Um, okay, we're— and, and, and what do you think he'll do as a result of that shaping? What, is, what does that mean? I think he'll take what is a the effect? tougher stand on Israel. Yeah. You Meaning? Know, um, stand up to Netanyahu. And, say, and so that might be more pressure for ceasefire, more pressure for the hostages. Um, just shaping it best he can. To which then he'll get a backlash from— Yeah. 
Yeah, These they'll be the weighing Americans that. Yep, and, they'll and be weighing say, that. Wait a second. That's why I'm saying that elections yeah. will shape it one way or another. Um, we are taping both sides of the aisle today on Wednesday. It's the day that Nikki Haley's in town. Yes. Me, none of us are there. So that says something. Now, John, you We're should be there. We're here in the bunker right now <laughs> recording. Yeah, but you should be there. Um, it's in Utah County and and different things. But, um, yeah, but we also have the session, so I've been on the Hill. Yeah, yeah fair enough. And, and I will say I felt like I had an invite and didn't go because of things I've got going. But... But this is the first time during this election cycle that she's made a stop here. Um, we have our presidential preference poll on March 5th. That's Super Tuesday. Uh, John, I want you to comment first because there's a little twist on it, right? We're not having a primary. We're having a caucus so night on Super a, Tuesday. That's right. We're not having a primary, so we're not going to the polls, at least for Republicans. Um, we are going to our caucus meetings. These are neighborhood meetings on a precinct-by-precinct precinct basis, and in there you will cast a vote for your preference for our presidential nominee. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of excitement a few months ago because there was a whole slew of potential candidates to choose for for the nominee. Right now, we're down to essentially two, two mm -hmm. and stuff. And so yeah. some of the excitement has, has gone out of the balloon, if you will, you know, some of that yeah. energy and air. Um, so we'll have to see what it's like. Uh, you know, some people are thinking we'll still have a, a good turnout for caucus nights. Others will think it... Uh, won't be as good as maybe some pastures. I will so it'll put be money. Undecided. I will put money on that it won't be a good turnout at all. Because yeah, just not well, not competitive enough. But I also think that I think that uh, the caucus is the wrong way to do it, right? right. And I join um, Governor Herbert in that. There's others that would certainly be there. I think it's a mistake for the Republican Party to do this as a as a what do you call it a presidential preference poll. Um, so is your concern only with the preference poll, or is your concern also with the other races? Because there are other races. Sure. I mean, we've got several candidates for governor. We've got, I've forgotten how many folks running for U.S. Senate, and, and where I live, 3rd Congressional District. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot of candidates that yeah. are vying uh, to get delegates, to get off to convention, to get them nominated. Yeah, my preference would be to not have a time-certain moment when you have to appear to participate in your democracy in these crazy times, whether you're a working mother or you work a different shift or whatever. In my lived experience, this will mean I go to Murray High School and I'll do this, but I'll go over to Murray High School and I'll sit through and endure, you know, what happens and then I'll, you know, express my endure. preference. You mean enjoy? <laughs> no, I'll endure it because for me, I mean, this is, you know, maybe you guys don't want to go here, but I actually value democracy inside the voting booth. Yeah. I prefer that more than being around all my neighborhood friends and people in my church setting talking about politics. I would prefer to, you know, handle those on a personal oh, basis. Interesting. It's see, uncomfortable for me. See, and I really enjoy the caucus meetings because, you know, when you have two, 250, 300 of your neighbors there talking about their concerns, mm -hmm. it kind of gives me shades of, of the old, you know, kind of founding area with coming together for yeah. those town hall meetings I, with everybody showing up and weighing in on governance. I don't mind the discussions. If that's what your thing is and you want to do it, it's great. I just don't want to be put in a situation where people that are in, are in ecclesiastical role with me have to disagree with me in public. Mm. I, it's uncomfortable to me. So uh, just an overall pitch for Caucus Night. Um, if you are a, de a registered Democrat, then you already received a ballot in the mail to be able to vote in the presidential primary. The, as was mentioned here, the Republicans are doing something different. But you can still go to your neighborhood caucus night and you can get involved if you are concerned about the way that things are heading or the kinds of behaviors we're seeing from particular representatives. Um, it's a great opportunity to get involved. And very often, because these are time certain and they're often difficult 
difficult to attend for people for a variety of reasons, you can really have an outsized impact mm-hmm. on your party. Um, so Democrats are also organizing this night. You can go out and join or you can join a Republican caucus in your neighborhood. And I suggest you do. Yeah. Go ahead. John. And let me mention one other thing for those that are Republicans. You can register online. You can also cast an absentee ballot. Which would be a so. good strategy for me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Let's stay with presidential politics for just a minute and talk about uh, this endorsement that uh, our House Speaker, Mike Schultz, our Senate President, Stuart Adams, and uh, several you know other legislators. I guess they uh, wrote a letter that was uh, signed by over 100 legislators and officials from around the state endorsing former President Donald Trump. Uh, interesting to me that they did this right before Nikki Haley came to town. Mm-hmm. Interesting there. Um, they cite in their letter a lot of things that um, you know they're very excited about. Uh, the president's for, former president's Supreme Court nominations, his stance on border security, what they termed as realistic foreign policy uh, track record on the economy, and I think there was also a lot about energy in there. Uh, Shireen, let's go to you first. Okay. But what do you see in there? I mean, from my standpoint, um, I, I want them to just stay focused on the session and. You know, I, I wouldn't have done this, but I understand. Yeah. So, I, I mean, what it says to me is that when we are trying to think about what it means to be a Republican now, mm-hmm. it is Trump's party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people I, used to say that and you could kind of argue that there's no argument. There anymore. is no argument. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm particularly troubled by, of course, the commentary here around strength at the border. We had chaos at the border under Trump. We had an opportunity to actually do something about that that was frankly, absolutely tanked by Republicans in the House. Um, So to see kind of this organizing, I think, just really lets you know exactly where the Utah Republican Party largely is. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's troubling. Mm -hmm. All right, John, we'll go to you. You're a candidate for office. You're uh, currently a statewide elected official. Did you you sign it? I didn't look. Uh, No, I was not on the list. Uh Uh, It's one of those type of things where... um, even if you sign a list or something like that, you're endorsing somebody and mm-hmm. you have to be able to stand 100% behind them mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, so I haven't endorsed any presidential mm-hmm. candidate mm-hmm. at all. There are many good things in terms of the previous uh, administration when Trump was there in terms of, of tax policy, in terms of regulations, in terms of energy development, in terms of public lands. Mm-hmm. So there is much to celebrate. And I know some of that was on that list. Um Clearly, there are some folks that had backed uh, Ron DeSantis mm-hmm. or others mm-hmm. who are now looking and saying, okay, here's here's where the train is going. How do I jump on board? And, and I would say President Adams, one of those, he was an early supporter of, of Governor DeSantis. And now, clearly, he's in the in the hunt with yeah. uh, President yeah. Trump. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate your candor on that. Well, let's do one more thing as we close out here. We have uh, our governor, who is uh, chair of the National Governor Association. He's spending time in D.C., uh, pitching his disagree better. He got props from uh, President Biden and from his wife, Jill Biden. Uh, John, Shireen, make well, we'll see how that We'll see how that plays with the uh, <laughs> challenges that he that our governor is receiving in, in his uh, re-election bid. But I just have to say, this is also on the heels of uh, Governor Cox making some really disturbing comments about transgender health care that are just deeply misinformed. And I continue to struggle with uh, the message that we should disagree better when I consistently see behavior from him that really makes me feel like either he doesn't he's not fully immersed Mm -hmm. in an issue, in which case I would prefer he say nothing or he's using these these culture of flashpoint moments to whip up political support. And so I'm I'm distressed by the the uh, 
contradiction mm-hmm. that I see in these two mm-hmm. things. I think it's a good idea. I wish that he would practice it more. John, let's give this topic 15, 20 more seconds. See what you think. Yeah, I, I think Republicans overwhelmingly are very concerned with the Biden administration and where it's taken America. And I'm going to, it's going to be curious how many of the governor's opponents are going to show pictures of the governor with his champagne flute there mm-hmm. with uh, President Biden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've Cel- seen this celebrating. before. I've seen this before in other, um, you know, times and places, but it's always, it's always dicey. So. Yeah. Okay. In our next segment, we're going to talk about the legislative session, which concludes this week. We'll have some great insights to share with you. Stay tuned, everybody. Shireen Gorbani on the left. John Dougal on the right. Natalie Gawker in the political center. This is both sides of the aisle. Uh, John and Shireen, as you, you know, read uh, the newspapers, if you uh, watch. What? what? <laughs> well, on, on your iPad. But, <laughs> no. if, but if you watch uh, evening news, uh, if you listen to the radio and listen to public affairs programming, you'll hear a lot. If you about, listen to our podcast. If you listen to our, you'll hear a lot about the state budget. And in particular, you'll hear a lot about sports and entertainment and the public monies uh, that are look like they're moving along. I mean, the the Major League Baseball bill well, has passed the so House. This year was supposed to be a socks and underwear year because there's not much money. Yeah. And then throw in and stadiums. Yeah, yeah. And then the NHL bill has now passed the Senate as we speak. So they just got a couple more days. But... Um, you know, well, today is the day they got to pass the budget bills. This is Wednesday. They got to pass the budget yeah. bills today. Yeah. Okay. So by the time this airs, you'll you may know even more about this. But they're looking like they're going to get this, and I'm super excited about that. I think there's an abs- because you're a s- closet hockey fan. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. It, it's because I believe in investment. And I believe in investment in your urban core. Now, I want both of you to take me on on that. Oh, and I we believe can't in investment, too. Yeah, yeah. I just don't think it's investment when we fleece the taxpayers to subsidize it. Yeah. I love investment. I want entrepreneurs <laughs> to put their money where their mouth is. I want them to back it up. But when all of a sudden you say you want taxpayers to subsidize it, yeah. to me and that says it's not an investment. Yeah, and my point. And you're driving up the cost of everybody else's cost of doing business or providing for their family to subsidize that activity, and government is the one facilitating that. So there's actually not great data on that. Um, the I've been reading some of the Tribs reporting on yeah. this. This is Andy Larson. He's Andy been doing Larson. a nice job on yeah. this. The yeah. impact of a sports team coming to or leaving a town does not have an outsized uh, impact on that local economy, especially in an economy like ours, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, one point that I would like to note that you mentioned, right, is that you want to see entrepreneurs make investments. I, of course, would like to see better and more strategic investments on issues in our own state that our government is funding. So this is a point of difference for us, though I generally agree with you. It's difficult. It's uh, frustrating for me to see uh, basically $2 billion materialize for these kinds of projects to move forward as quickly as they as they are coming together while we continue to have yeah. people sleeping on the street, okay. right? So, so I, I want you guys to just ima- imagine for a minute that you're sitting, here, our eyes. you're sitting here in 1990 and Salt Lake City's population has been in decline for 30 years. Do you, do you let that keep happening? Because community leaders said, no, right. we're going to change direction. And they started investing in the core. And because of that, today, we have a downtown that represents us well. So my conservative point about why this investment's important is that you can pay now, or you can pay a lot more later. And sports and entertainment is one of the vital things you keep in the urban core. 
And by doing it, you, you are actually bringing money to the center that then makes the center more attractive, makes it more high amenity. It's a human capital play to attract more people to be here. And John, the entrepreneurship, the innovation that you want, it'll only happen if you've got a great place to live. And I think this is one of those things that will speak to that. So and I, I just, we also have to say, you don't want to live in downtown Salt Lake City. No, I no. love living in downtown Salt Lake City. And I love being able to walk around, be engaged. Like when people are out on the streets, it feels really fun to be here. I love our city. I think it's safe. I think it's clean, largely. I think we have problems that we need to address, certainly around homelessness. But I love living in, I live minutes from downtown Salt Lake City and I love it. And I will note, I moved here in the mid 90s. Mm-hmm. And so, and I didn't come here because of the amenities or the quote unquote investment in the core. I moved here for many other reasons. Well, the investment hadn't like been that. happening when you came. No, but we'd been but through three decades, is, three, three decades but you're of decline. talking about the decline. And I came here in the mid 90s because oh, I decline. believe because, because I believe Utah was a better place to be than California mm-hmm. and the misguided policies there. Yeah. But, but you want to, you also talk about investing in this core of Salt Lake City. And my understanding is folks were considering the arena in the Draper area where mm-hmm. the prison was. Mm-hmm. And so what is wrong with what is wrong with these opportunities going to different areas of the valley or, or the Wasatch A front? Ton. Why are we micromanaging yeah. and saying it has to be we're gonna centrally plan this and it okay. has to be so downtown? Two quick points. Um, so the infrastructure is in place downtown. Whether it's the airport, whether it's three or four freeways that are crossing and connecting there, whether it's front rudder, whether it's light rail. Hotels. Yeah, the the, the infrastructure is in place, so it's less expensive to do it. But most importantly, to have it downtown, you're actually bringing more money into the core. We don't need to put more money on the periphery. We need to bring more money into the core. And that's this is what – Why? This is Why? What, because that otherwise – That sounds like a central planner. Why? <laughs> yeah, because otherwise it deteriorates. And then when you have a deteriorating downtown, you're not attractive to human talent. When you have a deteriorating downtown, property values decline. Crime starts to pick up. And before Businesses you know it, be there. you're a suburb to nothing. Yes. And, and so you're saying we don't want other areas to grow and expand. I mean, I this them, is the type I, of thing, if you will, I, I mentioned them, Sandy last time with the Hale Center Theater. I mean, Sandy I and them, other cities yeah. want to grow up and have opportunities there. I, and this is saying, no, we as the state know best and we will plan it the way we want to. Yeah. And that's downtown Salt Lake. Yeah. Well, so this requires leadership. And I would say that we want, you know, the, the suburbs, the exurbs, we want them to all grow and do their thing. There are certain things that you must have in the core. Major leagues, franchises are one of them, right? Because it's one of the only things you have that can bring things to the core. If you put a big shopping mall in the core, it can last for a little while, but it'll get competition on the outside very quickly. So there's so arts, culture, sports, entertainment, those should be, and, and seat of government, even financial services, legal services, yeah. that should be in the court. So, and okay. I want the market to decide. <laughs> okay. Well, so let's stay with the legislative session. John, you mentioned off air that this has been one of the more um, I hear unwieldy, from a cantankerous, that, divisive that lots sessions. Lots of folks, whether they're elected officials, legislators, or whether they're lobbyists, just saying it has been the most difficult session they've ever experienced in all their years. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of curious why. Mm-hmm. I mean, have you so heard what's that? Changed? I've heard it. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it too. So, I mean, so what's changed? I mean, we can talk about some things that have meaningfully changed. Leadership has changed. Leadership has changed. Um, in the House, not in the Senate. And I would say we could see maybe a little bit less happening in terms of uh, that feedback from the Senate. It's kind of more, I think, driving out of the House. 
let's pile on there. Leadership has changed and the body has changed. And the body has changed. Right, particularly yeah. in the house. I'm yes. going to go there. So Some, but, yeah. but that's small. I mean, uh, And it always happens. But, yeah, it happens but, every but year. I think you most about, people you know, would say that— 20% or so that changes in any given the, cycle. The needle shifted to the, but, to the far right more. Yeah. The other thing is the, bar, the body is largely last year the same body as it is this year because we're going into an election cycle. So it's largely the same body. The one thing that is different, though— is this is the first year that the filing for to be a candidate happened before the session started versus after the session. Mm-hmm. And I know for some folks, you know, when I served there, there were always various folks that were concerned. Are they going to stir up an opponent by an action they why took during they the session? That? I don't know the specifics of mm-hmm. why they changed it. Part of it had to do with signature gathering mm-hmm. and all time. that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. They needed to move things up because of more time mm-hmm. because of when the conventions and stuff were happening. And they didn't want to do it in the middle of session. But one of the things, you know, one of the running jokes when I was in the legislature is nothing happened in election year because people were too afraid that they might agitate somebody to run against them. Mm-hmm. This year, clearly, that doesn't look to be the case. And the only thing that I can really see that's different is that filing date yeah. changed. And I'm just curious, and we'll have to see over the years whether that alters the dynamics. But it's just one of those things that makes you go, hmm, I wonder if. Yeah, I, th- I agree with you that it's been a hard session. And, and I, I think that there's also some, what would you call, contextual things out there that are dominating things. Uh, we have a GOP right now that is xenophobic, isolationist, zero-sum populism. I'm okay. looking at my notes on that one. I read that in a column. But my point would be that we used to have a Republican Party and a conservative movement that was intellectually rich and very uh, fully developed, limited government, you know, rule of law, um, all the things uh, that that I think are pretty important. Uh, actually, global engagement, national defense, those things aren't those things aren't top of mind in the Republican Party anymore. So I think the party's changed in a big way. I very much agree. And I feel like even in the time I've lived here, which is now 15 years, so quite a bit of time, a person who pays close attention to what has happened in our legislature, you can absolutely see a trend towards engaging in these more kind of cultural flashpoint issues. And they are ramping up each year. I think about the rapid pace with which they passed a trans bathroom bow. Mm-hmm. That's the top priority. Mm-hmm. Like, you're telling me that's the top priority in our legislature. You're pulling it together. The lake is dying, mm-hmm. right? We've got huge issues when we're thinking about infrastructure and the growth, the rapid growth of the state. And that, off the bat, is the first thing that happens. Yeah. You missed the memo. The lake's back. Oh, Better yeah. than ever. It's, it's definitely not. <laughs> so I but, think these trends are absolutely being reflected in the party that we're seeing here. I want to give some praise, though, to, to you know, current leadership. Uh, when I've spent time, I don't spend a lot of time on the Hill, but when I have, I was there yesterday. I mean, I'm there a couple of times a week during the session. But I actually think the leadership's been really strong. I really do. Um, I've watched as they've navigated, uh, you know, some really tricky budget issues, some really tricky, um, you know, let's call social issues and different things. They're, they're, in the end, we're going to get a tax cut. We're going to get a lot of investment in education. I'm, my understanding is that the state employees are going to get a 5% bump out of this session. We're hearing at the university a 3% bump. Those are yeah, those are pretty I, attractive. I and I'm, I haven't heard 5%. Is that's, that right? That's not a number. That's, I, that's, that's a number, a number I heard number. today. Okay. That's not a number I've heard. And, but, but, the point I've is, heard but the point is that they're investing in human capital, meaning the workforce that, yes. that serves the state. And I, I think it's a pretty tall order what they've had to do. And I, I, give, I give Speaker Schultz and President Adams a lot of credit for for managing this. To your comment about tax cuts. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, we're going to give a tax cut here, but we're going to raise taxes over here. 
and it's it's kind of a shell game from my perspective. If I'm all for giving a tax cut, mm-hmm. let's give a tax cut. Mm-hmm. Except for okay, but I do want to talk about this tax cut because again, <laughs> this so is, an income tax for from what four four six, six five to, six, five, five, to four, five, five, something yeah, like that. Four five five. So again, what this is going to do, which is what they have typically done in Utah, is they continue to benefit the top earners. So people who make the most benefit the most from this tax cut. Well, the people who pay the most benefit the most. I think that this is a absolute wrong way to be thinking about who has money in their pockets because for people who are making 60% of that handout goes to the top 20% of earners in this state. For people, the bottom 80%, which is most of us, we're talking about $5 a month that you're getting back in your pocket. This is not a good use of resources when we think about things like the cost that we have around childcare, the of child care that we have, when we think about all of the opportunities to really fund critical social service programs and education. This is $650 million out of that budget into your pocket so you can have $5 more a month. And I wouldn't call that a handout. I would say that's the government taking less of your money that you earned. And providing less for it. Uh, Shireen, you probably loved seeing this, uh, you know, I'll call it a bonus for for school teachers, ten dollars to $20,000 uh, going into their pockets to help them. It's good to see. We also need to really be thinking about the broader environment when teachers are worried about every word that they say about having a picture of their family on their desk, about, you know, being policed around every book that they read in their classrooms. It's still a very difficult environment to be an educator in Utah. John, I love the perspective that Shireen brings to this program. I have never heard the notion of a teacher fearing putting a picture of their family at their desk. And that that says something to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, we've got 30 seconds left. Anything else you want to say about the section, John? Uh, I, one of my concerns is just that we campaign as conservatives, but unfortunately we don't quite govern as conservatives. Mm-hmm. We get too enamored with all the things that government can do when we forget about um, all the rules and regulations we promulgate on folks and yeah. act like they can't govern themselves. Yeah, And I'm going to say that they're doing a pretty darn good job of governing as conservatives. Shereen? Um, Yeah, I would love to see improvements (laughs) in this area. (laughs) All right. Hey, well, great program. So good to spend time with you, John and Shereen. The program's produced by Anthony Skoma. Thanks, everybody, for listening.